PM board bombs. Now, here's doctors Iltafat Hussein and Blake Briggs. Welcome back to another EM board bombs. It's myself and Dr. Briggs here. We're coming to you on a Monday afternoon. How are you, Dr. Briggs? Feeling a little rushed. Just got home from a shift. I know. I told you. We gotta go. Well, actually, I was I was in the middle of a shift and you said, didn't you forget we had a record? And I said, oh, shoot, you're right. So I told everyone at work, I'm sorry. I have to go. And you just, your STEMI patient, you just put them on pause. Mm-hmm. I, I told the cardiologist they can take care of it. And they can, I asked the cardiologist, can you, can you actually see the anal fissure in the pregnant patient too? And he said, sure, I'm happy to take care of it. That was really nice. It's nice mm-hmm. that they know more than just cardiology. <laughs> sometimes it's not just the heart. I've heard, I'm sure they've t- told you that sometimes. Well, were they trying to diagnose a quote type two MI end quote mm-hmm. by saying yeah. it was coming from the anal fissure? <laughs> hey, welcome back to EM Board Bombs, where we drop high yield board knowledge and just yep. life knowledge in general. Check out emrapidbombs.supercast.com. Mm-hmm. You'll see that in our show notes. It's been getting a lot of buzz lately. Mm-hmm. We've got a great section with EM News as well. You can check out some of our podcasts there. But it's been really exciting to see how many folks have been signing up for emrapidbombs.supercast.com. It's a great way to just get five-minute hits of board knowledge, EM knowledge, delivered to your inbox or your podcast player three times a week. Pretty sweet. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. Kicking off the New Year strong here. Hey, guess what's coming up in less than two months? What? It's something called the ITE. Uh, You know, I'm almost 10 years removed from that, so Mm -hmm. I don't recall what that is anymore. Can you enlighten me, Dr. Briggs? Is that because of memory loss, because you're so old? Um, I was trying to subtly flex and say that I've been practicing long enough that I don't care about it. Oh but my God. you brought it back into another way and had to use ageism again. Thank you for that. Marlena and I, if she were here, she would be rolling her eyes. And I, would, and I am too. Well, right now. you guys are usually rolling your eyes anyways, <laughs> no matter what I say. We are. So we are, yes. There's, so what's going on with IT? So you're saying basically EM Board Bombs you know, has a podcast called EM Rapid Bombs mm-hmm. that is made perfect for IT e-learning. Yeah, any board prep or IT learning, absolutely. And that's really the biggest benefit here. So less than two months away from the IT, I know the vast majority of residents have not started studying. <laughs> Our signups, it's always hilarious to see that. It's yeah. like, you know, you can... The scramble. Yeah, the we scramble. have like steady number of folks that just keep, you know, that sign up, whatever. And then as mm-hmm. soon as... IT comes around. It's like mm-hmm. you just see it, all the procrastinators just start signing up ASAP. Yeah, like, oh shoot, that was that was this February, and they just crush like the podcast. Like, guys, mm-hmm. drip learning. It's much better that way. It, it's fascinating to see you know the metrics on EM Rapid Bombs because you'll have some people that space it out. They'll do like one mm-hmm. pod a day, two pods a day. They'll repeat them, mm-hmm. and then you and have then... other people that'll just literally. Spend the whole day just crushing it and putting it on repeat. And I just have like a (laughs) mental image of like this person just, you know, slamming monsters, right? Slamming, having monsters, having their pen and pad (laughs) out and just listening to us on 2X and just Mm -hmm. totally being in the zone. (laughs) 
it's like such a different environment and that person doing it once a day they have like spa music playing in the background they're getting their spa they're listening to us on the rapid bombs slow speed and then and the other person just like you said with those monster bang energy drinks just crushing it and then they hit the can on their forehead to crush it right. and in addition to our podcast they're like listening to like you know metal music in the background yeah exactly right exactly right <laughs> Hey, let's do this podcast. Give us a stem. Give us what we came for. Give us what we came for. A 63-year-old female presents to your ED with the chief complaint of drooping eyelids. She states that her granddaughter recently set up a TikTok account for her, and she's been spending several hours late at night looking at her phone screen at videos of people doing fascinating dances. <laughs> she actually interrupts your exam to show you some of the videos. For some reason, though, TikTok starts showing you videos of medical professionals doing ridiculous dances, almost quote, reading your mind, end quote, and knowing who your audience is. Hmm. <laughs> hmm. She states that when she rests, she doesn't notice her eyelids drooping, but the longer she's awake, the more her eyelids become droopy. She Googled this at home, and she said she came upon a Wiki EM article oh my and God. is concerned about myasthenia gravis. She states per the Wiki EM article, she placed an ice pack on her eyelid, noticed a decrease in her lid drooping by more than two millimeters and diagnosed herself with myasthenia gravis. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Mm -hmm. You commend her skills and then ask her to swipe up on her TikTok to see the next video. Dr. Briggs, the following is true regarding a myasthenia gravis except, so again, the following is true except, mm -hmm. A, the most common initial presentation is bulbar muscle weakness. B, urinary incontinence is a rare finding. C, improvement in symptoms is seen after rest. Or D, improvement in symptoms can be seen when ice is applied to the affected muscles. What's the correct answer? Correct answer here is choice A, the most common initial presentation is bulbar muscle weakness. Mm. Boom. Fascinating. So myasthenia gravis, we have a great handout on the website, so we're not going to go over too much here on the podcast. Also because there's a lot of things that they're never going to test you on for myasthenia gravis because right. thankfully we're not neurologists. <laughs> thankfully. Thankfully. So myasthenia gravis is a chronic autoimmune neuromuscular disease. We know about it. It's classically tested in medical school, mm -hmm. but it's easily mismanaged in the acute clinical setting. I think it's one of those diseases that every emergency doctor sees and just like says internally panicking like, oh shoot, which one was this one again? Right, right. <laughs> and I think it's confused a lot with Guillain-Barre, even though you know, obviously they're completely unrelated, but it's one of those like, oh, it's a muscle weakness thing. Right, you know? right. And, and again, there, there's like a limited number of ways you're going to be tested on this. And that's why we're, we're just going to hit through some bored pearls here, right? So thanks for reading my mind there. I, I know. We, I appreciate we're it. We're in sync now. Right. So the most common initial presentation of myasthenia gravis is yep, what? Yep. Dr. Briggs. Ptosis. Yeah. So let's be a little bit more. Extraocular <laughs> muscle weakness. Okay. Let's. All right. So around 85% of patients have this on initial presentation. 85%. Hmm. That's massive. That's a lot. That's massive. So remember, it was not bulbar, right? So it is extraocular muscle weakness. Commonly, you'll see this in patients with diplopia or ptosis so again diplopia or ptosis or both or the deadly d's yeah 
Right. Where's the like Christopher Nolan music? Hey, have you seen the trailer for Oppenheimer? Oh, it's stunning. Oh, we're going to have to use some of his music. I am hey, so, did you, have so you asked excited. him yet to request Include some us? of his music? Well, no, sometimes you know, he oh. gives you gives us previews of it. Cameo? They they do have bombs in the movie. We should be in a cameo in that. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, just reach out to him after the pod. Just don't well, Maybe forget. we shouldn't be associated with a, a nuclear warhead. But Well, no. I mean, he's been so gracious to us in the past. So mm-hmm. anyways, uh, we'll reach out to him. Thanks, Ed. I'm drafting an email right now. I'm listening. Though. All right, do that. I, I wish he would just give us his phone number, but he's too, I think, still too scared. He's private. To he's very private. He's very private. Yeah. So a bulbar muscle weakness is the initial presentation in 15% of patients. Notice mm-hmm. that difference. Around 85% of patients, they're going to present with extraocular muscle weakness. So that's, again, diplopia or ptosis or both. 15%, they're going to present with bulbar muscle weakness. You know, oftentimes people hear bulbar and they're like, what is that? So Dr. Briggs, what is that? Yeah, bulbar, that's going to be symptoms like difficulty chewing or frequent choking. So anything to do right around the pharynx, Mm. dysphagia, hoarseness, dysarthia, anything right around that region. Great. And then choice B that was a reminder that there are no autonomic symptoms with mycelium gravis. So it involves the nicotinic cholinergic receptor. So you don't, well, I know, I know, let's just move on from that. So you don't yeah. get things such as palpitations or urinary incontinence or bowel issues. Right. Choice C and D, uh, those are a reminder of the two key things that make symptoms of muscle weakness better. So rest and cold. The latter, you know, that we referred to was, you know, again, that was the ice pack test. Uh, you know, the ice pack is placed over the eye for a few minutes, then assessment is done to see if there's improvement in ptosis. Right. The two mainstays of treatment for mycelium gravis are cholinesterase enzyme inhibitors and immunosuppressive agents. None of that stuff matters for us mm. right now. Right. The next step that's most important and what you're going to be tested on is when to intubate these patients and what to look out for. Right. So right. a quick pearl here is that myasthenia crisis is going to be one of those tested elements. Mm potentially on your boards, and just in real life, this is the most common issue that you're going to face as an emergency medicine physician. As an emergency physician, you're very unlikely to outright diagnose myasthenia gravis, but you're much, much more likely to manage a crisis. And a crisis is defined as worsening weakness leading to respiratory depression Mm -hmm. and eventual intubation. Mm -hmm. Now, about 20% of patients or so will experience a crisis at least once in their disease course. That's nuts. In fact, 20% of patients that have a crisis... That's their initial presentation. So they come in short of breath, weak breathing, all right. that stuff. Right. And they have myasthenia gravis and they don't know about it. Now, the rapid therapies for myasthenic crisis are things that you'll never have access to in your emergency department. But you Plasma need to know. Change and but you IVIG. need to know and you will be tested on But this. you need to know and you will be tested on. Yeah. For some reason, boards will talk about this. They just ooze over plasma exchange and IVIG and what percentage of patients experience a crisis and, you know, what, which number of these patients you'll need to intubate, et cetera. You have to know this stuff because it's just commonly tested things. Right. So your only job in the ED is to admit this patient to the ICU yeah. and discuss elective intubation. Right. Elective intubation is obviously much more preferred over rushing an intubation because it's going to be a crash one and the mm-hmm. outcomes are better when it's an elective early intubation. Tell me more about the presentation, how these patients could look when they come in. I know we talked about bulbar symptoms, but tell me more about the nuances of how these patients look when they come in and why, why they have a crisis, of course. There you go. I think what you brought up, why they're having a crisis. So again, they're going to have worsening bulbar mm-hmm. symptoms. They're going to have you know generalized weakness. And oftentimes that's coming from signs from respiratory distress or they have some sort of mm-hmm. viral illness. So mm-hmm. there can be a whole host of things that are triggering this. So infection, 
physiological stressors like pregnancy, a recent surgery, tapering or missing medication doses, or taking certain drugs that exacerbate myasthenia as well. So remember, oftentimes you'll see the patient, they're struggling to breathe, they've got just terrible ptosis and you know bulbar symptoms as well, and you're thinking crisis, but you really need to be working up some of the underlying things. I had a recent right. myasthenia crisis that I was taking care of, and they had flu. Uh, that's what was exacerbating their symptoms. So a lot of it was respiratory support and managing other things associated with that. And I had one last week, actually, funny enough, that also had asthma. And so he looked uncomfortable when he came in. He had weakness of breathing. But if I hadn't listened to his lungs, I would have identified that he was wheezing. Right. Uh, and I gave him a breathing treatment, and he felt a million times better. Yeah. And so avoiding intubation in that sense was helping a lot. Yeah, it's poor form to start the IVIG uh, before you start the nebulizer treatments. <laughs> One of those is slightly cheaper. Yes. <laughs> hey, so what are the clinical signs that alert you to impending respiratory failure? There's really three things here, at least on the exam, and then there's some objective measures. Why don't you cover the three symptoms? Yeah, we'll talk about it. And exams aren't going to really test you discreetly on these. No, but, but it's, it's good enough for the clinician. Exactly. But it's important to know for life. And it, they might present certain aspects of what we discuss in the following on their stem. So mm-hmm. dyspnea upon laying down. So not just shortness of breath. Uh, this is that feeling of drowning when they lay down. Remember that diaphragm, you know, fatigue and that diaphragm's not being helped when, you know, they're laying down and you know, gravity isn't helping them as much when they're, you know, laying flat on their back. Any bulbar symptoms? So remember we talked about bulbar symptoms. So, you know, difficulty clearing secretions, dysarthria, like a weak cough. And then late findings are going to be just poor respiratory effort. So only able to speak a few words, you know, before taking a deep breath, shallow breaths in general, just using accessory muscles during inspiration. If you see any of those things, you're really on the borderline when it comes to impending respiratory failure. So objective measures of respiratory failure can help identify who's at higher risk, not just with these symptoms. And you have to put quotes over that word objective because these values have to be taken in context with the clinical picture of the patient. And there's like two things that really matter here. And I'll be honest with you, and I'm sure you're the same way. You know, you can admit if you're not, but I have to look these up every time. Um, You're not going to remember these and and the test is never going to ask you these values. But it's just good to know what these things, the terms are. So the vital capacity and the NIF. Right. And, and look, we talk about that. But the reason why we put this in air quotes is because vital capacity and NIF, those are things that themselves are effort dependent, right? And there are a lot of other things that affect vital capacity and NIF, such as the patient's age. That alone can affect it. Or what was their baseline vital capacity or NIF? So it's hard to use just straight numbers. But again, uh, for like vital capacity, a value below 15 to 20 milliliters per kg is considered predictive for severe respiratory fatigue. NIF, once you get into that, like... Yeah, a NIF or negative inspiratory force is also called an MIP or MIP. It only provides information on inspiratory strength. Basically, the patient will inhale against a closed valve from a resting you know, tidal volume measure. And inspiration against this closed valve generates a negative force... So the values should be negative numbers. Mm-hmm. So a NIF less than one-third of normal, which is zero to negative 30, provides you know a probable deterioration. Now, again, if you're listening to this, don't memorize these numbers. There's mm-hmm. no point. Don't. You're going to have to look this up. I'll be honest. I go to EM Board Bombs every single time, go to the myasthenia handout when I have a myasthenia patient. I just quickly review 
these values, just to remind myself when I ask the respiratory therapist, you know, any RT is going to know, oh, yeah, I can do a vital capacity and NIF for you, no problem. Yeah, and take it into context. I think that's another key thing. So you might have someone that meets that NIF criteria where you're mm-hmm. concerned, but it doesn't necessarily mean you need to just go ahead and intubate them right away. Not at all. Yeah. No, but it's good information also to help with admission. And yeah. so when you have these values, and thankfully at a place I work, I don't have any trouble really admitting anybody. But if I ever did run into the issue or someone's like, hey, yeah, what do they belong in the ICU for? You give these numbers and say, hey, I'm really concerned about this person. Boom. Here are their values. There you, you go. Know? It's huge from a triage is. standpoint. Huge. Absolutely. Yeah. Big stuff. Hey, can you talk about some other respiratory support measures? Yeah. So, you know, non-invasive positive pressure ventilation is always a good strategy. Mm-hmm. It can be utilized on a case-by-case basis. It's been shown to decrease the rate of intubation by a lot, by like 40% of patients in one small study. Now, obviously, non-invasive positive pressure ventilation doesn't take the place of securing an airway. If patients are too weak or they're falling asleep uh, as you put the mask on, it's probably not the best patient, especially with those with severe bulbar symptoms. Uh, Obviously, you know, you should have a very low threshold to intubate and don't just rely on non-invasive positive pressure ventilation in patients with concerning symptoms because they're going to keep regressing. This isn't going to be uh, a spot where you're going to get them better. You're just trying to bridge them, right? That's what most uses of NIPPV are, is bridging. And bridging to a point where maybe they can get plasma exchange or IVIG and get better. Or maybe, as Iltvot said, you eliminate the offending agent and get them to a spot where they can support themselves. That's great. Uh, but it's so sad, these patients that get intubated so often, I just feel so bad for them because they uh, they have this chronic disease and it's just awful because uh, they know that every time they come to the hospital that there's a chance that they can be intubated. How, what an awful feeling. Um, so uh, managing these patients in a way that supports your respiratory drive but doesn't ignore the fact that they can crump very easily is the right strategy. Right. All right, so uh, you want to do the quick summary and wrap it up here? Sure. So myasthenic crisis, they're associated with in-hospital mortality of around 10%. It's pretty massive, even in the near mm-hmm. ICU setting. The most common causes of death are sepsis and respiratory failure. Approximately 50% of these folks actually require some form of rehab upon discharge. Your job as the ED doc is really to understand some of the key things to worry about, some of those bulbar symptoms, how to, air quote, objectively measure signs of impending airway issues, and making sure these patients are triaged appropriately. That's critical. And also understanding some of the treatment modalities. What are those two key things? Yeah, so two treatment modalities, plasma exchange, IVIG, you'll never see. Right. Right. But they will be done. Right. They will somewhere. be done. Exactly. And those are the discussions you have with your neurologist, right? And that's what you push and advocate your patient you know, for, uh, especially in the ICU setting. Um, you know, usually you're not doing that on, on the triage floor, right? So, mm-hmm. uh, so usually that's not a floor bed patient. That's right? not a, is, that a, is that not a lobby treatment? Right. Exactly. <laughs> some of the other things that you might get tested on and just some key pearls to know. The most common initial presentation of mycena gravis is extraocular muscle weakness, such as diplopia or ptosis. These are fun words. I know, right? Myasthenia gravis does not present with urinary symptoms, such as incontinence. There are two non-pharmacological things that make myasthenia gravis symptoms better, which are rest and cold. Boom. Hmm. Hey, uh, we're not getting into the mechanism of why cold works either. We're also not getting the mechanism of all the countless medications yeah, no, that's, uh, <laughs> that exacerbate myasthenia gravis. This, because... is, uh, this is a blue-collar <laughs> podcast. Uh, you know, we're two boys from the South, so uh, you can. There are plenty <laughs> there of nice— go, uh, There go our ratings. I know. There, 
there are plenty of nice West Coast and Northeastern podcasts that you can listen to. Many of our colleagues, and we love them. Trust me. We love them. We see them at conferences. They're great. All those blue-collar folks out there. Just tell me what I need to know. Just tell you what you need to know. Hey, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, thank you again for joining us. Remember to go to emrapidbombs.supercast.com for greater than 300 rapid podcast episodes. Thanks, Blake. Hey, thanks for being my fellow blue-collar colleague on this podcast. I appreciate it. No problem at all. It's an, it's an honor badge I wear proudly. Thanks, sir. Thanks, sir.